Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. No one knew it back in 1993, but that year's River of Dreams would be Billy Joel's last studio album's worth of pop songs. Knowing that now makes the Shades of Grey documentary all the more special. This 80-minute film first aired on PBS on November 23, 1993, and was later released on VHS and Laserdisc. It's a panoramic view of Billy's life and career at the moment, featuring interviews with him, then-wife Christy Brinkley, bandmates, producers, and even old friends. You also get a fly-on-the-wall view from the studio when he was recording the album, and plenty of live footage from a concert in Boston in September of that year. The narrative here mixes and matches these elements throughout the film. It resequences events and interviews to give us what seems, at first, like a snapshot in time. And the film opens and closes with concert footage to make it feel in the moment. But a close watch reveals that it's really a story that spans years. It explores the conflicts and challenges that swirled around the making of this album before resolving into an explosive live performance. So join us as we dig deep into 1993's Shades of Grey. Man, I really dig this video. I'm really trying to remember when and where I got it. I want to say early 2000s, and I think mm-hmm. I just picked it up secondhand because, you know, why the hell are you not going to pick up Ah, Billy Joel documentary? Yeah. And uh, watched it, enjoyed it, went back to it once or twice, you know, shelved it for a while, thought about it every once in a while. It's one of those ones that uh, if you haven't seen it, you've probably seen clips of it on YouTube here and there, but it's really good. Yeah, it's well done. I'm, I can't remember where I picked it up either. I feel like it was in the 90s, and I still have the very same first VHS copy I ever owned of it. I think I was confused when I first picked it up because on the back it's got a list of songs. So I think mm. at first I thought it was just a concert film. But nevertheless, yeah. I was excited because it was something Billy Joel I didn't have. So yeah. I picked it up, and it really was an interesting snapshot as to what was going on. and. Yeah, at the time, I wasn't aware of big changes in the band and what was different about mm. this album. And I wasn't really aware of what went on behind it all. And so it was interesting to hear everyone's take on it. So here's my quick, uh, I went to film school for two years and I want everybody to know it kind of statement. Here's what I noticed when I rewatched it for this episode. They use a moment in one of the master classes and one of the lecture, you know, Q&As that he does. And he talks about how, you know, he used to dress up to feel like a writer. He got writer's book, he used to dress up. I got stuck once, and I couldn't write. I, I, like, I didn't feel like a writer anymore. It's like, you feel terrible. It's like a ball player who's in a slump. You can't hit, no matter what you do, you can't call on your old skills. It's just not working. You can't put it all together. So what I do is I go out, I go to, where, like a, I go to Little Italy in, in Manhattan, and I get a nice outfit on, like a writer's outfit, like a songwriter, like a sort of a modern-day Chopin outfit, you know? So I'm looking bad, see? And I sit at the table, and I get a glass of wine. I sit there, and I have my notebook and my pen. I delude myself into feeling like writing. I mean, that's just my little jumpstart trick that I do sometimes. 
and you start, and you, all these people are staring at you, so you've got to do something. <laughs> that really stuck out to me, and I, as I watched, the clothes he wears and other people wear, especially him, it really tells a story. Because the first thing I noticed, you know, Michael and I, I think we've, met, we've mentioned this before, but we do this remotely. I'm in Philly. He's in Washington State. You might notice that I'm always just wearing a black T-shirt. I have just always like, and we used to joke about it. That's like the musician uniform, you know, jeans, black T-shirt, jeans, black T-shirt. Yep. And when you see Billy at the beginning, you know, we know um, during this tour, you know, he'd be wearing a blazer and you realize he's just wearing a black T-shirt underneath. It's kind of funny. Um, yep. Like it, that thing could be like a Fruit of the Loom T-shirt from what it looks like. It doesn't oh, look yeah. like anything fancy, you know. You see that and then he's talking and he's got on like a dad sweater. Where he's I like sitting in his office. Yeah, he's sitting in his office and he's, you know, he's he's got his beard. You got to watch too, you know, like all the different times. Okay, so yeah, he's he's wearing that sweater. Uh, then he's wearing that like baggy shirt and tie, like that real kind of fuddy-duddy, I guess I'm in my 40s now, yeah. working in an office look. Then he's wearing a sweatshirt and a scarf on Shelter Island. Then he's wearing a flannel in the studio. And, yeah. you know, I really think that you can get a sense of who he kind of wanted to be, you know, at any given time during this film, really based yeah. on watch what he's wearing at different times. And to that point, I really, really enjoyed the editing on this because, you know, again, having seen it a few times, I was kind of able to sit back and, and watch for these elements. They do a really good job. You can, if you pay attention, there's six pieces of film that they used, right? It's the interview with Billy, the interview with Danny, the interview with Christy, concert footage, the Shelter Island footage, yep. uh, the interview with Lib, that's six. And then Phil and Ramone. Some master, Phil Ramone and some master classes. Okay, so that sounds like a lot, but it's kind of not. And they're clearly at different times because you could tell, again, by what Billy's wearing that, and, and by what he's saying, you can tell when he's talking about the album before recording it while he's recording it and afterward and they do a really good job of they clearly sliced and diced these interviews it's not linear you know what i mean this isn't the order in which christy brinkley talked about these things on the order in which billy or danny did mm -hmm. i'm going to talk a little bit more about how this uh, ties into blonde over blue later sure yeah and it really shows you how he's feeling about things at the time by his yeah. wardrobe and you know another way that you can tell how non-linear it is is by his facial hair yeah um, but even specifically just looking at the studio segments like when you go to lullaby you don't really see the gray but he's got a full beard and then when he's in mm -hmm. doing river of dreams he's got the shorter beard but there's a lot of gray yeah it goes back and forth between his facial hair throughout this film and it's not consistent it jumps all around so that's another way that i noticed that it hops around in time as well and you know like i said it kind of creates the illusion of being in the moment because it keeps cutting back to this concert. Now, I looked it up. I don't know which concert it was, but it was definitely Boston Garden. He played September 14th, 17th, 20th, and 23rd in 93. So it was one of those that he recorded it at. Okay. Might have been more than one. You know, they yeah. may have just shot a couple days. Here's another little funny nod that I kind of thought of. You know, it starts with the concert. So it feels like you're just picking up. And I love the little backstage moment beforehand. At first, the camera work and Tommy Burns mugs for the camera for just a second there at the beginning. Uh -huh. It's really reminiscent of Yankee Stadium Yankee. video. And then it's really cool because, right. you know, it just gives you this little nod to what was happening right before. And then it moves the story forward and goes present. Right. Like there's, there's one final nod to that time. 
That's funny you mentioned Tommy there. What I like too about the concert footage, Yankee Stadium, Live from Long Island, you don't see backstage Billy. Right. Do on the Leningrad stuff, but not most of the concert films. It was cool just to see him yeah. trying to loosen up a bit before he goes on. You know, he's mugging for the camera, doing his Brando mm-hmm. and all this stuff. <laughs> just, yeah. just trying to loosen up, I think, before going out on stage. Yo, what the hell is with all the music stands? Did you notice that? There were a lot of band room music stands on stage. I don't remember ever seeing that before or since by any of the guys on stage. With this type of caliber, you know, unless you're bringing like an orchestra on stage or Mm -hmm. somebody sitting in who doesn't usually play with the band, it's like you rehearse these things till they're ingrained in you. So that was surprising to see. And yeah, I'm not sure why. Yeah, it was that and like a binder, like a full thick ass binder. Or the music on the piano. Um, the binder that's on Billy's piano, that big binder you're talking about, is actually yeah. lyrics. Right. Well, I mean, that's what I figured, but yeah. it's just really surprising to see it out there. And they didn't cut around it. I remember him saying back in the day that it was kind of his security blanket. He's like, it's got every song in here, so it's not like I can just flip to different songs <laughs> throughout <laughs> yeah. the show. It was, I guess, some sort of comfort to know that the lyrics were right there in front of him. Um, But obviously, like now they use the teleprompter for everything. So that book went bye bye. There's a story. If you ever watch uh, footage of the Clash live, whenever Joe Strummer introduces a song, he goes, this song is called and he says the first line. So like if he's doing Rock the Casbah, he's like, this song is called The King Told the Boogeyman. You got to let that raga drop. And they asked him why. He goes, if I don't say the first line, I'll forget the lyrics. (laughs) <laughs> right, right. You know, Philly's a big cover band town. I've been like kicking around in that, not amazingly, but you know, I've been through it. It's like a mortal sin to have your music on a music stand on stage. It's like, you know, we did that once on a Tuesday night at a nice club and they were like, hey, you guys sounded great. Don't ever bring that stand on there again. Like, really? No, no, no. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can sneak something on there, but you cannot have a music stand up there. You know, right. if you're a Like, I've seen people have iPads with. Oh yeah. Well, now it's a, it. yeah. Now it's a different story. Now we're all up there with those, and you know, for better or worse. But right. One other thing I like too about like the first couple shots of this, as Billy comes out on stage, you see the drums underneath the stage. You know, the trap door is open, and you can see the drums yeah. down there in the pit, slowly starting to rise up as he walks on stage. That was kind of neat. Was it? The, I guess it was the drums. I thought the piano did it too, but maybe I'm just thinking of seeing the drums. No, there, there's one spot. I think it was um, later. After one of the right. songs, you can see like Wayne down there prepping the piano with the trap door mm-hmm. open and the piano is about to go up. And, uh, you know, speaking of that opening, dude, that, that rendition of Shades of Grey is like blistering, man. They, they were really on fire on that one. Yeah, that drum, that Tom intro, and the guitars yeah. sound good. Mark singing the background vocals. It's funny because I'm not too honed in on his voice for some reason like I I couldn't pick it out at first and I'm Uh watching like throughout the whole Shades performance they don't show him at all but they show like you see Crystal you see T-Bone you see um, obviously Liberty and David and all during the different vocal parts of the song but neither of them are Mm -hmm. singing it so I'm like who is singing it and I'm like oh wait I haven't seen Mark and then then it clicked that Mark's the one singing a lot of the background vocals. Here's my notes. You, at the oh. end of Shades, you can see Billy's piano being prepped and the trap door is open. There it is. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's always funny now, you know, the more I do my research on these to find out always what Billy was inspired by or what he says he was, quote, trying to be. I think it's in this. They said he was trying to do a Cream song. And I had never noticed it before. But yeah, like those ba-ba, that's like pure Jack Bruce.
I want to put together a tribute album where like we all just like take these songs and we do them in the like really in the style of the yeah. uh, artist he always mentions, you know? <laughs> oh yeah, that would be cool. But, I did like the little bit um, too coming out of the concert footage where um, the arranger, Ira Newborn, talks a little bit about meeting Billy growing up. Uh, his cousin was a friend of my mother's and would call up and said, Rita, you have got to have Ira come over and meet my cousin Billy. He's so talented. You guys would get along so well together because you're both brilliant, blah, blah, blah. And I went over to visit him, <laughs> and we sat down at this white piano he had with 8,000 cigarette burns on the keys, and a whole bunch of notes didn't work at all. And, you know, I, I played it or something, and I said, hey, all of these keys don't work. He says, oh, I just play around them. And then he started playing, and I realized he wasn't, like, playing, and then it just didn't work. He played around them, and I said, oh, boy. They had met when they were young, and then yeah, here here he is, this you know amazing arranger. I mean, the string and horn arrangements and lullaby are just beautiful. The '90s were the last era where he really had like the auxiliary keyboards. Oh, that, like that I know, I know through like the greatest hits three tour, like '97. I think he still had it too, mm -hmm. but you know he had a couple of those auxiliary Kurzweil keyboards. All right, let's talk Danny Korchmar. Yeah. Now, we'll talk a little smack for two reasons. One, I got a nice thing to say about him. Two, he's a big boy. I think he could take it. Yeah. Um, I like this album. I always like this album. Listening back, I hear where there's a little, couple too many ornaments on the tree there, but whatever. Mm -hmm. He comes across like a Simpsons character in this. Just everything about him, the way he moves, the things he says, it's like, it sounds like when they're making fun of like a studio exec on the Simpsons. You mixed can imagine with, him yellow with a Mixed with comic book guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's Worst like, studio I wanna, ever. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, end of the day, you know, Billy makes Billy's album. I'm going to tell yeah. him what I think. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, like, and I'm like, I'm holding on. I'm like, I'm putting this in my notes. I'm like, all right, I'm going to write down. And he looks like, quote, a friggin' Simpsons character. But as I'm, as I'm writing these, I'm like, ah, I'm going to massage that a little. And then he says, I wanted to bring the element to Billy's music that we had not heard before. The funk element. I want it to sound like a small group really rocking. I want it to have a raw, a little bit unfinished quality to it. Like, what, what damn albums did you listen to? Like, did, yeah, that, did I'm you like, not hear Stiletto? When, he, when like, he said that, I'm like, have you not heard so many of these albums? Like, yeah. Turnstiles, The Stranger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, that, that stuck in my craw a little. I wasn't crazy about that. Like, that no. just made me sad. That just made it sound like you just wanted to do your thing on it, you know? Yeah. But here's maybe the saving grace of, of Danny Korchmar in this, because it does almost paint him out to be a villain. Just yeah. a little bit of the editing here and there. And maybe maybe that's just the bias of, you know, knowing the story behind the album and knowing how people feel about it after all these years. Right. And so you see him, you know, I don't want to say he's boxing Billy in, but, you know, he's definitely doing that thing where he's like, I'll take him out of his comfort zone. You know, like he's definitely doing that. You know, he's definitely half making a Danny Korchmar album and Billy's like kind of caught in it. And there's this moment when they're doing River of Dreams and Billy says, Wait, this Celticness. And I think that's what Danny did well. I think that, you know, maybe we weren't there on Shelter Island. You know, we've heard some of the demos now, but who, who the hell really knows? Right. Um, and, and we get to listen to the demos. We get to listen to, like, You Picked a Real Bad Time or uh, Jericho Road and these things. And it doesn't matter. We can listen to them and there were no stakes to it because it's an outtake. It's a bonus. Right. You know, mm -hmm. it could be half-assed. We'd be like, oh, that's still kind of cool. I think what he did was he kind of, he 
built this structure around Billy. And like, you know, if Billy didn't have to worry about, you know, all the logistics maybe, because mm-hmm. he mentions that too, like Billy does all five things, you know, yeah. and he does like all these great things. I, I, I really feel like he took away so much of the nuts and bolts that yeah. Billy could just sit there and come up with something as abstract as, I hear this Celtic thing. And that's, yep. I guess, that, that atmospheric stuff at the beginning. And you wonder if he never would have gotten to that childlike artistic point right. if there wasn't structure around him that he could kind of kick around in. You know what I mean? He didn't need to build the house. He got to paint the walls in that sense. Yeah, that's a fair point. And I agree with you there. That's That was kind of Danny's redeeming bit. He rubbed me the wrong way at first too, but I'm, you know when he comes to that point where he's like, something's going to suffer and I want to help take the stress off so he can create. Yeah. It's like, yeah. okay, okay. Yeah, I guess it worked, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I'll give you that. <laughs> yeah. Billy goes into this really, really nice version of 2000 Years, just him and a piano. Oh, yeah. In the beginning There was the cold and the night Prophets and angels Gave us the fire and the light Man was triumphant Armed with the faith and the will I've always liked that song. I'd say that's probably my favorite song off of River of Dreams. Just to hear him and a piano do it, I was like, wow, it sounds so good. You don't need anything else. That goes back to the whole point of like a good song is a good song. You know, you could layer a million guitars on it and it'll still be a good song. But just to hear it stripped down to just him and a piano, I love that version of it. Yeah, it really makes that melody come out. And I think, you know, in a couple of years after that, you know, in 1999, every pop star in the world had to make their millennium, you know, everything was 99 and millennium and this and that. So calling yeah. it 2000 years put a lot of weight on it. I don't know that the end result, the end arrangement was great. I don't know. It seems like you either go as stripped down just a piano or like you better have an orchestra encapsulating, you know, two millennia right. beautifully. And it just, it ended up in the middle when they yep. broke down and they, and they just gave you the, the solo 2000 years. I'm like, this is so nice. It's got that, it did have it had like an Irish melody to it. You know, you could almost mm-hmm. hear it on a pan flute or something. Yeah. And just letting it sit like that made it so much more intimate. This segues too into the, the first appearances by Liberty and both Phil Ramone, which I yeah. thought were very interesting choices for this documentary. Because yeah. as we know, Liberty was involved in the Shelter Island sessions. And then when Danny Korchmar came in, he brought in a new rhythm section. So for this record, Liberty was out, aside from Shades of Grey, which carried over. What, what, what I love about Billy's style is, is that he speaks for a, a generation. You know, I, I always I had a cousin of mine call me up once and said, it's amazing how in three minutes he can say what I've been thinking for months and say it exactly how I wanted to say it. You know, it was a good reframing of his career, yep. really. To hear somebody say that, I was like, yeah, you know, that's a big part of the appeal. I think we kind of circle around that idea a lot. It's funny how, you know, in 2000 years, too, he says, you know, we're on the verge of all things new. And you're like, dude, 2000 is just a number. Uh, I think he was right. Holy hell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was pretty right on in that. I also liked Phil Ramon. I remember this when I first saw it and I laughed. 
<laughs> and I loved it again. We weren't doing disco records. I don't know what they thought we were doing when he was talking about the reviews. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's like, I remember the first time we got a positive review. We looked at each other. We're like, career over. Which is funny, too, because for fun, I looked up the River of Dreams reviews and, and uh, Rolling Stone gave it a really nice review. It was reviewed very well. And I think it was pretty much the albums into the 80s. The initial reviews were not positive. There's those old stories about Billy tearing up reviews on stage. And, you know, that was his whole thing back then. He was never a critical favorite. It's just yeah. so funny how like critics so universally panned him back then. You couldn't draw a line from that to Steely Dan. Like it really was that off between The Stranger and, and 52nd Street. You couldn't make that connection. I remember Billy is talking about the songwriting process. Making albums and songwriting has always been hard for him. He, yeah. I think he loves when the album's done and he loves what the end result. But the process is a struggle. And he talks about, you know, he always is afraid that what if I'm coming up with songs that I hate. And that vulnerability, that's a part of a great artist to be like powerful front man on stage, ego, whatever, one minute, but then to be the insecure writer the next minute. It juxtaposes well with when Liberty uh, mentions that, you know, Billy's dream is to play Hammond organ in the background in somebody else's band. And, you know, that's what's fun too about like the Q&As. It's not in this video, but it's in one where he kind of talks about why he does it. He goes, because when I was a kid, I wrote to the Beatles and I said, how do you write these songs? I want to know how to write them. And I got back. If you'd like to join the club, send $2 to this, you know. So he goes, so I go out because I'll answer those questions for people. You know, even in doing that, he's uh, very humble about it. He's like, well, this is just kind of what I figured out and this is how I do it. And it's painful. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, he wants yeah. to help people avoid some of the pitfalls too. And when you're going through like writer's block or you're struggling trying to be successful, to be able to see somebody like Billy who has attained all the success you can in the music industry, to mm. see the human side of him and the struggles he went through, it's kind of inspiring to be like, okay, this guy went through all that too. And, you know, he managed to have a great career. Just to know it's not just you goes a long way. Had a friend yeah. of mine who was a comic book illustrator, and uh, he, I guess he was a comic book writer too. Just reminded me of that. He he got into he was a, he's like a gentle dude too, like a real calm guy. He got into MMA like to break writer's block. He's like, I just needed to do something different. Wow. And he went into MMA and then wrote a uh, comic book about it. Really? No kidding. Yeah. I, I love the scenes in this where you're talking about Billy when he's sitting at the piano. I, I feel like it's at his house where he's talking about yeah. songwriting a bit. And the first one um, on the documentary, uh, where he talks about the reggae origins of Only the Good Die Young. I remember I was on the road. I was in Knoxville, Tennessee. I had nothing to do. That day, I'll write Only the Good. So I wrote, Come out, Virginia, don't let me wait. You can't let guns, it's not much too late. This is still, you know, this is back in the um, mid-70s, and reggae was still, like, new to us. You know, it's very fresh kind of music. On oh, na 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 check it, check it, oh let it go die on. So I, I went over and, and uh, showed it to my drummer and he goes, I don't want to play reggae. I hate reggae. Here's my question about that real quick. Was that well known by that point? Because it is now. I don't know if that was like the first time that story really came out. I want to say no, because I didn't know about it at that point. Yeah. I think by the late 90s, the reggae demo of it was starting to get tape traded. At least that's mm -hmm. when I remember first hearing about it. But back in 93, I don't think that was very well known to my, to my knowledge, yeah. at least. Yeah, this may have been a debut for that. So, he, you know, he plays a clip of the original version in a reggae style. And then they cut to Phil Ramone, which I thought was <laughs> perfect because it talks about how involved the band then was in yeah. the songs. And he's always had an interactive thing between the band and himself. 
And, you know, the man is brutal. At that time, they, <laughs> they didn't care who he was. It either worked or it didn't, especially Liberty. Liberty would throw a set of sticks across the room if there wasn't a full lyric. If you notice on the Billy Joel album, it says words of music by Billy Joel, produced by whoever, and it never says songs arranged by, because everyone has their, their input. We, he usually writes, has an idea, runs it by the band, and if it flies with the band, he'll continue to write it and complete the song. In the uh, Doug episode, you know, Andy's talking about how he used to call it the Christmas tree, and, you know, there was a very specific way these songs came about that w definitely was not just Billy sitting in a room by himself coming up with it all. And then they go into Christy talking about him having trouble writing. This was a time yeah. when he was coming out of, or, no, he was still actually actively in this lawsuit thing with Frank Weber, his former manager. So he was personally going through some rough stuff hundreds of millions yeah. of dollars or something along those yeah. lines were just gone it's like he had to go on the road to get out of debt which is just crazy to think about and you know correct me if i'm wrong i think to a certain degree too that wasn't just his money you know what i mean he's got a multi-million dollar operation going on he's got employees you know he's yeah. got people that have been with him for 10 15 20 years at that point and he's thinking about them too you know they're gonna catch the screw as well that affects the band the road crew management i mean you know so many different aspects of it and that's what a lot of people don't realize You've got Billy Joel, and again, I use Metallica as an example. Metallica is a business. They're a huge business. Yeah. And they employ, you know, these artists employ so many people. That's a lot of responsibility. And when somebody comes in and pulls the rug out from under you, it affecting yeah. him is bad enough. But the trickle down is just terrible. I mean, there are stories about the Grateful Dead because um, they were just such a business that they kind of talk about there are right. points where they stayed together and kept touring mostly because they couldn't bear to like put 20, 30 people out of business or out of work because right. they were their guys full time. I mean, you know, this stuff is such a gig, has always been such a gig kind of thing where, you know, you hope you get picked up for a tour. If you cultivate yep. and you have somebody with you for that many years, you're really throwing them out back out to the wolves. Yep. It's a real, there's no uh, safety net, you know, it's a real tightrope walk. Yeah, it, you know, it really is. And they, the artists who really take, are able to take really good care of their crew, you know, a lot of times they'll go on retainer, basically to guarantee that they're available when needed. Mm -hmm. They're paid throughout the year, whether they're on the road or not. Billy worked hard to make sure he had the guys he wanted. He took care of them. I mean, they haven't played in a couple months and wouldn't be surprised yeah. if Billy's taking care of his band and his guys as we speak. You know, I saw Guns N' Roses, their interview with Duff McKagan talking about the same thing. He's like, you know, we've got a crew of 70, 80 people. We're okay because of 30 years of record sales and tours. He's like, mm -hmm. right now our focus is taking care of our crew. That's amazing to me. Yeah, that's really cool. You know, I mean, you could definitely imagine some people just cutting and running on that, especially back then. Nobody would be the wiser. Right. But uh, yeah. Yeah, so when you're talking about losing that much money, it's like uh, it's like Chappelle, you know, like the Chappelle show. Like people were like, "Oh, you got a million dollars an episode." He goes, "No, no, no, the production got a million dollars an episode." Like yep. I didn't pocket all that money. That went to everybody: the lights, the sound, the writers, the office, the sets, yeah. everything. It's much more divvied up than you think. People complain about like now how expensive tickets are, and I'm I've done it, sure, but touring's expensive. It costs like six figures just to turn the trucks on for the first time. Yeah, you've already spent that before you've even gone to the first city. Mm -hmm. Staging, rigging, set design, lighting design. How many semi trucks do you have to buy or rent? Yeah. How many tour vans and buses? When you have these bigger productions like the Metallicas of the world, they'll have two or three full setups playing hopscotch right. around the country, and then they have the same thing in Europe. I've uh, worked catering and uh, and setting up shows in, in Philly. Like the first time I realized this was uh, Springsteen back in 2012. I mean, there was like 
I'm going to say probably about a hundred like day laborers, all of us that went in and were responsible for putting down the flooring, yep. you know, driving the vans around, stuff like that. And then, you know, you watch these guys put the stage together. I'm like, Hey, he's playing somewhere else in two days. He goes, they have this exact stage. The last night of the concert here, it's going to be halfway up at Giant Stadium or wherever yep. else. Yeah, in the next city. It's a village. It's hundreds of people that go to each one of these. I mean, uh, I've done everything from like set up the flooring to drive around the band to yep. just wash dishes for 16 hours straight, you know, and, and hear the music going on. <laughs> Metallica has um, their tuning room, which is they've got a full setup and they record everything. So it's oh, really? essentially a mini studio set up. Uh -huh. in their tuning room that's recorded every day has like a mobile recording rig. So someone's responsible for that. You got your teleprompter operators, your sound guy. I mean, just the list goes on and on to make these tours happen. When you're saying, oh my gosh, I'm paying $100 for a ticket. That's employing hundreds of people. I mean, they're still a little expensive, but at least I understand. That. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and they get more expensive now because nobody makes money on record. So they got to get it however they can, you know. And I really do think that's a big reason why ticket prices went up quicker. Uh, you yeah. know, in the last decade or so, because like you said, no one's buying records. So if you want them prices going down, buy some t-shirts, man. You yeah, know. <laughs> seriously. It's like a PBS tote bag, you know, like you're not paying $50 for a tote bag. You're donating and you're getting a tote bag as a thank you. You know I mean? You're buying the t-shirt, whether or not right. you're going to wear it because you're not buying the album anymore. You know? Right. You listen to it on Spotify. But yeah, even, you know, even with merch, like on the big arena tours, okay, you're like, oh my gosh, this t-shirt's 40 bucks. But then there's also the people selling the merch. And then you minus the cost of the shirts, which is if you're printing a ton of them is only probably five bucks a shirt or so. But then you also have the venue takes a cut, 20, 30%. Yeah. So that's going directly to the venue. So even the merchandise, it doesn't all go right back to the artist. Yeah. But that's the most direct way you can do it. You know, I'm a sucker at these Metallica shows because they do custom <laughs> merch. Billy does it a lot now, too, where, you know, if you go to Madison Square Garden show, there'll be a custom shirt with like the venue, the date, the whole bit on it. You know, when I saw Metallica in Portland, they had one that was like the Portland Trailblazers design, but it was the Metallica logo. And <laughs> yeah. same thing with the Seahawks when they played in Seattle. So they get creative with all this unique merch that's specifically for that show. So um, all that's to say is these tours support a lot of people. So once we get back into concerts again, that's going to be the best way you're going to support all these artists that we love. Yeah, This was quite support a quite a diversion from the documentary, but... It's something that obviously we're both passionate about. Yeah, you're supporting them. You're supporting the lighting guy. I mean, I think one of Billy's lighting guys was uh, responsible for like kind of pushing the game ahead. Yeah, Steve Cohen, the lighting guy, and Brian Ruggles have mm -hmm. been with him, gosh, since the early mid-70s now. But I think there was something about them like, you know, kind of advancing the technology or the style. And that comes from being with the same person long enough to start being able to take chances and, and come up with a vision and execute it when you're not just hopping from stone to stone. When you have the same road crew, you have the trust. You trust him to make decisions. And, you know, once you're a respected and trusted part of the crew, you know, you're able to try things and try different things that you wouldn't otherwise try if it's like a one and done thing for you. Talk about all those financial troubles. You know, they, they touch on how that inspired uh, the song Great Wall of China. And they do an interesting montage of all the different newspaper clippings that yeah. were just peppering the news at that time. And from a film perspective, that was a good way of, of drawing in a couple years worth of information and history and squeezing it into one song which is essentially what billy did it gets a little tricky to talk about the documentary without diving too far into the album because we're going to do the album at some point too but uh sure i mean that's a mark of a good writer the great wall of china if you didn't know what it was talking about you wouldn't have guessed it it's not like you never give me your money where it's like yeah that, that kind of makes sense you know talking about negotiations and stuff like that who are you by the who you know that's about that too i didn't know that no 
it's basically the stories about Pete Townsend, I guess probably Roger, whoever, whomever else, were stuck in a room with the accountants and the lawyers, and they were like just hashing it out for that long. And Pete just, you know, got to the bottom of his patience, went out, got the uh, plastered, and passed out in an alleyway. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> and uh, and uh, that was what the cop said. The cop was like, you know, he recognized it was Pete Townsend. He goes, "You can you can go sleep in your bed tonight if you can get up and walk away." <laughs> wow. I love songs like that that come out of specific experiences that still can appeal to people like that. Like I always love the Sarah Bareilles song, Love Song. Oh yeah, I'm not going to write you a love song, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but like the story goes something along the lines of the labels like album sounds good, but we don't have the hit. How many times have we heard that? I think they wanted her to write a love song. And then her response was like, I'm not going to write you a love song because you asked me. And so it's really like, I'm not going to write you a love song is basically what the song is. And yeah. that became such a huge hit. Yeah, it's funny. Well, it's like um, going back to uh, Joe Strummer, and that's funny because I get to come full circle on this. But uh, Rock the Casbah was from their manager at the time. They were like they were recording Combat Rock, and like everything was like really long. Like they were recording like eight minute tracks, and the guys like, how come everything has to be a fucking raga? So uh, <laughs> so Joe Strummer just right goes home and he writes down the King told the Boogeyman you got to let that raga drop, and that's where the song came from. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm looking up Who Are You. I know, yeah, it was, um, I stretched back and I hiccuped, looked back on my busy day. I was 11 hours in the tin can. There's got to be the better way. Uh-huh. So, yeah, but that's what he, I remember reading about that's what a tin can meant, that they were stuck in this room for yeah. that long, like negotiating money. I thought this was an interesting choice after the, this whole Great Wall of China montage, how, like, mm-hmm. it segues into the beginning of the project. So then they take it all the way back to, you know, Billy wanting to to record the album out on Shelter Island, and that's mm-hmm. how he wanted to do this album. The last album, actually, I used a different producer and introduced a few new musicians, and it it was fun. It was refreshing. It made things happen. It put a different spin on 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 the recording process. This time, I wanted to do it even further, so I said, I'm going to try to record out here in the East End of Long Island, and I took all this recording equipment and moved it over to Shelter Island, which is you got to take a ferry to get there. It's remote. Well, we came out here like a garage band and made rock and roll. And he would write the songs, and we'd blast them out out in this room back here with the band and uh, see what came out. I suppose one of the, the ideas behind this project was sort of anarchy. Let's see what happens. <clears throat> We're in this lobster shed out here with rafters in it next to the, the sea. And who knows what we'll come up with. Yeah, another testament to the narrative structure of this and, you know, how they went back and forth but kept a feeling going forward. Mm-hmm. You know, it feels linear, but it's really, really not. Underneath the whole Shelter Island segment, too, you hear the Shelter Island version of No Man's Land. And you see him playing it, too. And now that makes me wonder, you know, how long this documentary was in the making that they knew to go out there and record it. You know, like, who, who recorded that? I wonder if this was just going to be documenting the album and then this all unfolded right that's how the whole metallica some kind of monster you've seen that right so out there if you guys haven't seen it this is like metallica is recording their saint anger album and then the band starts to fall apart Mm -hmm. james hetfield goes into rehab jason newstead quits the band they bring in this therapist who wears these bill cosby sweaters (laughs) who's like and they gotta sit in these flowery rooms (laughs) yeah and they're having these therapy sessions while james is in rehab and when james gets back well originally they were going to be filming the making of the album for some infomercial deal and then the band started to fall apart while the cameras were rolling and so suddenly it became this whole new thing 
That's what Spinal Tap was. Man, they really hit that one on the head because that was I was just supposed to go out and tour, but I got so much more than that. I got the sights, the sounds, even the smells of being in a rock and roll band. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> that documentary was prescient. I mean, that's one where like all the guys that like they lampooned were like, there was like an interview with Rob Halford. He was like, I, I, I had to look around. Like, was it were they backstage with us? Because I'm pretty sure that happened. You know, like right something that oh, you know, yeah. Rob Halford was saying. Like, yeah, that was just spot on. It was creepy how good it was. Yeah, I like, oh. you know, it's funny seeing that that studio, too. It definitely had a cool vibe. I, I know Danny Korchmar clearly hated it, but I thought it was pretty yeah. cool. This is, too, where they go into, you know, where Liberty's talking about, you know, how when he found out that he wasn't going to be on the record. Yeah, it's a real intimate moment. He's like, you know, the pit, I had a pit in my stomach and everything else. So he told me he was going to use another drummer uh, and uh, all new musicians. And I got to tell you that when he said it, it was like the car hit the wall and I flew through the windshield. I couldn't believe it. I had a knot in my stomach because after 18 years of being with the guy, I, I just freaked out. The thing that really got me to the point where it was like it's his decision was it says Billy Joel on the cover. It doesn't say Liberty DeVito. He has to make the choices. You know, Shades of Grey is the only one on the album that Liberty's on because that was the only one from the Shelter Island sessions that made it. It almost seemed like a nice nod to Liberty that they really accentuated the one song he was on. You know? Yeah. When they did like the videos for like All About Soul and stuff and it was you know, new versions, they were just like live in the studio. It was, uh, it was Liberty on drums for him. And see, that's the crazy thing is like all these songs that he played live didn't play on the record, but man, he's, it sounded great. It sounded awesome. Yeah. You know, there's that kind of fan theory out there that there's a narrative to the album wherein he's all twisted up about like everyday kind of BS out on Long Island, you know, No Man's Land, Griffin Wachan is like actually a personal song about finances, Blonde Over Blues, like one of his depression songs, yep. Minor Variations, just your blue, that kind of thing. And then he just says goodnight to his daughter and he has this like awakening because the last couple songs are so much more serene, so much more pastoral that like it's almost like he had like a, a, a spiritual awakening. That's what makes the sequencing of the record so good is yeah. it's like the turbulence and the storm and then like mm -hmm. the rebirth and the relief. The back part of that record has a whole different feel. They cut back to him at the piano at his house where he's talking about how songs translate into classical. You know, he starts with The Longest mm -hmm. Time and then talks about how basically illustrates how well that translates into like a classical piece. And it sounds really beautiful, actually. It's the same way that 2000 Years sounds really good just on piano. I gave you an example. Like, uh, I wrote a song called For the Longest Time, right? Because, uh... If you said goodbye to me tonight But if you could play it Like a classical piece And, I, and I'm not a good classical piano player anymore So but that tends to be the better material. And then he you know? goes into We Didn't Start the Fire. Yeah. <laughs> and then he's like, it's really not much of a song. Dun, dun, dun. And then he's like bopping his head like how stupid this is. Take a song like We Didn't Start the Fire. It's really not much of a song uh, if you go like this. Did you see the video where he forgets the words? It was like a couple years ago. Yeah. And he's like, ah, I got to do this one again. God, it's the worst melody I ever wrote. <laughs> That's right. Now, here's another funny thing about that scene is he predicts the future again in a slight way. 
because he says, I'm not that much of a classical pianist anymore. And when he put out Fantasies and Delusions, he wrote it, but he had somebody else play it because he said he wasn't he wasn't up to snuff on the performances. You're right. He could write it, but it was just a little out of his wheelhouse for playing it. What I love about the We Didn't Start the Fire bit is where he talks about the origins of it, the song oh, Jolene, yeah. which I've never even heard so much of a demo of. Like I've never heard right. any bit of that song, the way it started, but I love it. Yeah, you kind of want to hear the rest of that one. To me, it sounds um, like something that could have been on like Street Life Serenade. Yeah, it had that early 70s California feel to it. A little yeah. country thing. Speaking of his, uh, you know, strength for melody, you know, like I said, I had it on VHS. I watched it a couple times, but, you know, you don't pop this one in every week. I, right. I never forgot that. Jolene. Yeah. Cut me out. Same. And yeah, that, he the sounds like the young Billy there, too. Like, because yeah. Billy used to go up high like that into that mm-hmm. register, he, which he doesn't anymore for obvious reasons. But yeah, I was hearing that element of like the way he used to write. It started out as a whole different song. The original song was this country idea I had. It was Jolene, won't you take me as I am? And that became. Take the melody by itself. Terrible. It's like a dentist drill. And then we go to another Q&A segment where he talks about Summer Highland Falls. You know, this is pre-digital piano, so he's mm-hmm. still playing stuff in the original key. This performance of Summer Highland Falls sounds fantastic as well. He has a nice casual approach to the vocals, obviously because he's, you know, he's just showing people the song for a point, you know, not for the performance. But it's fun to hear him be, be that casual and just toss off the vocals and it still sounds that good. So there's a couple other segments we touched on already with uh, talking about critics and whatnot. When they cut back into the studio, though, it's Billy and Danny going over drum parts for Blonde Over Blue. Blonde Over Blue, Papa, it's all triplets. Papa, Papa, da ba ta da boom da ba da ba We played it tonight. We've already played it. And you wonder how much of that was not for the cameras, for the cameras, but you, you wonder how much of that was like, you got to acknowledge how silly it sounds when you're right. trying to explain this. Because we all like, do. I mean, I was just teaching lessons today. I'm like, no, it's a da ba da ba da ba ba you know. It's the two of them talking about what Zach should play. Zach Alford was the drummer on this record, on most of the record. Mm-hmm. Steve Jordan, I think, played on 2000 Years, and maybe another song or two. It's like mostly Billy and Danny talking about what Zach should play. It doesn't really mm-hmm. feel so much as he's part of the conversation. Yeah, well, they make reference to it being a surf beat. And Billy's like, how do you like that surf beat? Or how's that surf beat sitting with you? It's unclear as to who came up with that beat in the first place. What's going to make that happen? Doesn't seem like it opens it up. Keeps it going. We can open it up with uh, change up somewhere. Change. Something like the pound, you know, the relentlessness of it. I think we can create the dynamic later. Or in any case, we haven't even heard it back yet. I want to hear what happens when it's back. Let me ask something. If we leave a uh, uh, tempo footprint, can he overdub a different drum part? Yeah, good. If needs be. Yeah, but what we want to do is we want to decide which way to go with it and then play it that way. So we don't have to, I don't want to have to try. Over the drummer playing on top of Jane Jigga Jing Gumbunga Jung. 
You don't like that? Hate it. Why? Because I hate it. That's why. Well, why do you? I want to hear. I want to hear it swing all the way through. I want to hear a continuation through the verses. A section, B section, C section. That has a swing for me. Yeah, but it makes the tune schizophrenic. It's the same problem that we had in the first. What's wrong with being schizophrenic? It's okay as long as it swings and as long as it gets that body thing happening. Otherwise, to me, it becomes less effective. Yeah, there's a lot of people on this album. Yeah, Richie Canada is actually on it. Yeah, where is he on that? Minor variation. Billy did do some of the overdubs at Richie's studio. You know, if I had any wish out of the documentary, I wish there would have been a little bit more of the figuring it out in the studio. Because to me, oh, I I love that. I love seeing stuff come together. I would watch five hours of that, man. Yeah. You, you could, I, I just want the raw, I would pay it an auction for raw footage. Billy's studio stuff is not documented much at all. Like as far right. as any filming of it and that that's about as much as you've ever seen of like in the studio working like really like actually working on a song like there's the yeah. bridge mini documentary where it's like they they show clips of them horsing around mm -hmm. and and stuff like that but to actually see them working actively working on a song they're about to cut um mm -hmm. i love that i could watch that stuff all day yeah it, it's fantastic I mean, Blonde Over Blue might be my favorite song on that album. Uh, I always loved it. It just touched me the first time I heard it. And, I, you know, to that point, too, I love when he, uh, when he just plays the melody and he lets that, that haunting, like, minor scale mm -hmm. melody. That's a timeless melody, man. There's a lot of timeless stuff on that album, like the Celtic influence on River of Dreams mm -hmm. and that Irish kind of thing on 2,000 Years. Yep. And, I, you know, I'm going to put that on, man. There's something like primal about that Blonde Over Blue rhythm that I always loved. It, that song haunted me from like the moment I heard yeah. it. In Great Billy fashion, as I got older, I, I understood it more and more and more and more. Yeah. What's so hard to believe is that part, it was associated with Uptown Girl, which is like <laughs> so couldn't be further from it, you know? Yeah. Blonde Over Blue. Uh, let's see. written that part of it is from something else it was actually uptown girl had that in it but before it was uptown girl it went but then that became Uptown girl, that I used that part in Uptown girl. It's them in the studio. I think there's bass and Liberty playing drums, just playing through it, and then Billy's playing dun, 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 on the piano, and then I oh. kid you not, it goes into ooh, 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 <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's like it turns into this whole other thing.
but yeah. like, could you imagine a melody like that being on an innocent man anywhere? <laughs> yeah, no way. Yeah, that, that album is so happy. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's what's great. Like he knew it wasn't right for that, yeah. but he knew there was something about it. And so he tucked it away for 10 years and it found mm-hmm. a home in Blonde Over Blue. Well, yeah. I mean, that's like talked about Cold Spring Harbor. We, we found when we went into the demos for that album, all the songs that didn't make it, we found all those like little snippets that made it into Piano Man and other songs later on. I think uh, Summer Highland Falls, right? Remember that we, we heard that one part yeah. of like one song? Yeah. And it was like that took you know another four years to pop up or so. And so Ghost was going to be on An Innocent Man. Thank goodness it wasn't. Yeah, really. Could you imagine that thing just dropping in the middle of it? <laughs> yeah. It's funny because you, you even see in the liner notes of, of Stormfront, it does say copyright 1983 on that song. Yeah, I thought it was 81, but I believe you. Just as a, as a thing to me, it's like, oh man, I always thought it was 81. Mm-hmm. And I like to, with Blonde Over Blue, he talks about the chorus. It's like a Slim Whitman meets Roy Arbison. <laughs> yeah yeah and which is totally to right Robinson. like I, I it didn't click to me until i heard him say it now i hear it all the time so here's what i loved about well like i said i mean i love that song uh again the narrative structure and the editing you know they talk about how like unrelenting and like depressing or whatever the uh verses and how much it opens up on the chorus mm-hmm. and they do such a great job of interspersing the footage of them putting together blonde over blue and there's a lot of tension they're arguing about the parts they're almost wondering if it's going to work and the way they do it is they just keep playing the verse right right time you hear it it's always the verse it's always the verse it's always the verse it's always the verse and then they open up the film and it goes into the chorus and you see everybody in the room just jamming out on it so they took not only the process of putting it together and the song itself but also they added in the narrative of the, the editing of the film yeah. And they, they use this they use the structure of the song to underline the actual process of writing this stuff, which is really what they're trying to explain to you is is the process of writing this album where he came in so, you know, like yeah. conflicted and, and twisted up. And then he, you know, and then he just finally let go. You know, same thing with, oh, I hear this Celtic thing, you know, all this push and pull and push and pull. And there's that little glimmer. That little glimmer of light that comes through, you know? They spend quite a bit of time on that song. Like, you, they almost do a full take on this film. And it's mm-hmm. interesting because there's some songs that are not captured at all on this. Yeah, No Man's Land is just for, for a second. Mind of Variations, Nowhere. All About Souls, that, Nowhere. Uh, all About Souls, which is I'm fun. talking studio. Like, there's the live oh, report, yeah. performance of that in Shades. But those aren't, there's yeah. no studio footage of those songs. Or um, uh, the Last Words. Yeah, Famous Last Words. Yeah. Um, you hear famous last words, but there's no like footage of like them actually tracking it. Right. Um, so, so I wonder if it's just crew was only there while they were doing those couple songs. I don't know. You mentioned the bridge media pack or whatever. Yeah. You know, you wonder if there's footage from all of them out there. Maybe there's some footage from Stormfront and the other ones, and they just maybe this is the one where they were like, "Oh shit, we got something here. Like this is pretty interesting." You know? <laughs> yeah, lots of yeah. Fun, like yeah. the closest we got was like 2020 interview of gla- a Glass mm-hmm. Houses where there's there's footage of them recording. It's yeah. basically Billy and Phil Ramone in there. You know? Just like we were, you know, saying before, it's so funny that. Billy honed in on the year 2000 said all these new things to come and were you know back then you were like ah oh, that's a cheesy line you know it's just a year mm-hmm. um you know the 80s into the 90s you know you, you, people people really know what they mean when they say the 90s but it didn't really happen until nevermind came out at least in my mind everything was still you know old yeah. school hip hop and and baggy you know colorful stuff 
Yeah. I guess, you know, wow, that came out in 91. I didn't realize that. What's that? Know, Nirvana? I'm talking about Nirvana. Yeah, I thought it was like 93. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's still, t- okay, so I'll say it still took a couple of years for the 90s to coalesce. And, you know, I, I feel like River of Dreams came out when it wasn't quite there yet. It was really getting there. The thing about this album, though, it doesn't really sound specifically like a album from the 90s. Yeah, it sits on its own. It really does. As grunge is kind of coming up and, and pulling the production, reining in the production values. Yeah. But, you know, Billy Joe's not quite uh, watching what Nirvana's doing and trying to figure out how to pivot towards that necessarily. Billy's bringing in like some blues elements, some like cream elements, and Danny Korchmar is coming off producing people like Bon Jovi at times. And, you know, so he's big on the rock. Yeah, it is an interesting yep. mishmash in that sense. Yeah, I mean, even again, you could tell what the clothes they wear. Like, that's so dated. Like, the engineer is wearing like, Overalls. overalls like yeah what are you gonna do the bartman too sir like danny korchmar yeah. is wearing the big shoulder pad still it's 93 like you know yeah <laughs> liberty in this one looks really different like i guess he had just gotten his hair cut or something but like if i didn't see the way he's his arms were moving because the cuts are so fast in the concert footage you almost yeah. be like is somebody doing a good liberty impression like what's going on over there coming up to the this river of dreams tour obviously his hair was thinning or whatnot but he his hair still remained Somewhat longer in the back, yeah. but then he just cut it super short and then grew the goatee. The 90s was when like all these old rockers like grew goatees. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah. So he looked really, really different. One other thing I liked too was the footage of tracking lullaby with our newborn and the, um, oh, yeah. the strings in the horn section. I enjoyed being privy to all those last minute arrangements where he's like, oh, should I play that note with my pinky? No, don't play the note with your pinky. It's going to get in the way. Exactly. That was the one thing that was like my favorite. He had the ear. He knew he's like, ah, oh, that pinky's kind of competing with what's going on over here. Maybe just leave that out. And you guys got to keep playing. I'm going to cut them off so they don't die. And you guys keep just, yeah. I got to make sure that whatever I put in that's accompaniment it's not too busy it doesn't run up through the range that he's singing in and mess up the vocal because the job basically is to accompany the vocalist and to another extent the piano that's what i'm talking about that low e flat and that low d yeah. we have to keep an, an ear on that because i'm just playing a g pedal under that you want me to leave the pinky out i will yeah I'm, possibly Okay. I think that to keep it clean. Some other artists are going to be like, this is how I'm playing it. You work around it. Right. But he knew that the conductor and the arranger was here in the whole picture and he trusted him to be like, you want me to leave that out? Yeah, please leave it out. Okay. Yeah. No, no problem. That sequence clearly drops you in the middle of that session because they're just in such a groove at that point where they're talking fast. It's not, you know, like you said, there's no argument or anything, but it's everything's just so like that just they were clearly had been working on it a little and we're just in the zone and, and just just knocking that out which is so funny too because it's, it's such a serene song and you hear them like just being so fast-paced about the setup to it and then they ease into this ballad and that's actually the last bit of studio footage that they show here again i like that they you know the ira opens and ira kind of closes those segments Mm-hmm. You know, at the beginning of the doc and then the end of the documentary part. Yeah, because then they cut into a live version of River of Dreams from the same shows. Yeah. And then they go into Christy talking about the artwork. It hit me suddenly that River of Dreams was the key of it. It just had to flow around. And every image in this painting came from the music itself. I just listened and I painted was the bridge a photo or was that a painting? That's a painting as well. Street Life Serenade, Songs in the Attic. I was about to say, So yeah. there's a, f- yeah. Clearly the most abstract. 
uh, the mm-hmm. River of Dreams one. Did you ever see the Mad Magazine Billy Joel songbook that came out? God and it's Chris. And it's Christy drawing, and you see Billy sitting there, but she's really drawing Alfred E. Newman on the on the easel. That's right. Oh, oh that's man, I, I found that. I dug that up. I had to like find a PDF of it somewhere online. Oh man, I remember that when it came out too. It was um, sing us a song, you're the cigarette man, hook him on Virginia Slims, and uh... I remember seeing that. But gosh, it's been a long time. <laughs> I had that. I remember like I just happened to buy that one, and it came out. But yeah, just that great art too. You know that that huge, just take the piss out of everything. Everything. <laughs> Nothing was sacred. I loved it. Other kind of cool thing that I noticed during the artwork segment where I don't know if it's the producers of the documentary or whatever who are talking with her about it. They're also going through a couple photos and they're like, oh yeah, some of these do remind me of Billy's likeness on here or whatever. And as yeah. they're going through the photos, it's the photo shoot that they used for the documentary. Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's because it's that picture of him with his with his hand, right? On his Yeah, face? that was one yeah. of the photos. After they wrap up talking about that, it's Billy's last little bit. Finally, him talking about, I wasn't uncomfortable saying I because I thought I had something interesting to say. Yeah. On this particular album, I didn't go too far outside of my own experiences. The album unfolded as the material was written. Each song kicked off another song, so there is a scenario. There's a beginning and a middle and an end of this thing that was pretty much based on my own life and my own conclusions and my own trauma. I wasn't uncomfortable saying I, because I, I thought I had something pretty interesting to say. He mentions that later. And that was like one of the reasons why he didn't record another pop album. He he's like, well, that one didn't do as well as I thought it would. And what are you talking about? It was the number one. He goes, nah, I really had a lot of personal, had a lot of things I thought were really worth saying, and th- those things didn't resonate with people. So that was sort of the end of it. Yeah, I'm sure you know other things, of course, too. But that was one of the reasons he mentioned later too that he felt like he turned a, a page uh, lyrically, and, and nobody cared. Yeah, where it's like the pop world kind of moved on, and yeah. he just wasn't part of it anymore. You know, for the amount of angst on that album, it's almost ironic that in the middle of the '90s, the, one of the more peaceful spiritual songs is the one that caught that it wasn't something like No Man's Land. Or even Blonde Over Blue. I mean, I guess it's like, well, you know, the kids aren't going to get on that, you know. There were a handful of singles, but yeah, most of them didn't do much. You know, River of Dreams obviously was a hit and then All About Soul. And then there was a technically a single of Shades of Grey, No Man's Land, and Lullaby. Lullaby's kind of entered the canon. Oh, agreed. That's out there. But um, to me, it just didn't yeah, make sense as a single. Yeah. I, I just didn't see it fitting in radio. I hate to say it, but you can imagine hearing it in a dentist's office, you know, almost. But not on like your rock station. Like, and here's Billy Joel. Good night, you know. Light FM. Yeah, because you know why? Because it's not like a light, it's not like a soft rock song. It's just a pretty ballad, yeah. you know? It's yeah. very classical sounding. And sure. You're not going to hear it next to uh, Carly Simon or something. So after that, they end the documentary with four live songs. They do All About mm-hmm. Soul, No Man's Land, Shameless, and then wrap it up with Only the Good Die Young. Shameless is a funny outlier on there. Decent version. Yeah. I thought it interesting that they ended with one of the classic songs. Well, I tell you what, man, you know, as uh, once again, you, you know, in thinking about how this uh, documentary encapsulates so many more years of a story than it lets on, it's fitting to end with a song called Only the Good Die Young, just to bring the time span back into perspective. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, kind of like how he structures the shows, it's like it kind of ends it on a rocking note, you know, ends it with a party 
party. You know, it makes sense too where, uh, you know, you're not going to do Piano Man because it's too long and it'd be a cliche to do that. Yeah. Seats from an Italian restaurant would be too long. It'd be a set Agreed. piece in and of itself. I mean, Only the Good Die Young is probably the next biggest song and is also like upbeat and short. It makes yeah. sense in that perspective. When those three great performances are not the highlight of the video, you know, you're looking at a good video. Because I honestly, <laughs> I didn't even take down any notes other than the names of the songs we played because they were good. The band sounded great. Yeah. I like that lineup of the band for sure. Crystal, Dave Rosenthal's first tour, and you had T-Bone Walk on bass and Liberty and Mark Rivera, Tommy Burns obviously on guitar. Yeah, I mean, it was a great, great band and it sounded great. Zero complaints about it. I thought it was fantastic, but the rest of it was so interesting that I really <laughs> didn't pay as much attention to that the live material. Yeah, especially going back and knowing the meat of the thing is going to be. Right. You know, you're just kind of hanging out through that. So I'm really glad that this was documented because like we said, there's really not too much documented of the recording process and this was such a transitional point in his career and to be able to document what has become his last studio album it's some pretty important footage i think and mm -hmm. it was really interesting to get a first-hand account of where his headspace was and kind of the timetable of you know what went on here again in retrospect knowing that this is the last shot they had to document billy in the studio doing it too right um, a song here a song there but that's not the same as going in and making an album yeah there would be no other chance to do a documentary like this and this was yeah the last shot I, you know i don't know I, i'm curious if it was like a sony thing because a lot of times record companies will initiate something like this mm -hmm. or you know sometimes there's bands out there who do document everything they do but clearly that's not the case with billy so i'm wondering what the intention was behind this and whose concept it was to to do this i wonder if it was one of those things where they just went into document it for a promo or whatever else and then realized they had something really worth working with yeah it turned into a whole new story and knowing what we know now it's such an important chapter of his career that regardless of how you feel about the river of dreams album it was just such a transformational and transitional period that it was just fascinating to me yeah well i think that's going to wrap this one up it was fun to dip back into this and go down memory lane off of a film that neither of us have seen in a while. Have, have any of you seen this one? Do you have the VHS or even the Laserdisc? You know, what are some of your highlights or lowlights of this film? Is there, you know, what did you think about Danny Korchbar? Was he the the villain to you immediately? <laughs> or what's your take on all of this? We'd, we'd love to we'd love to hear it. I want to hear from the Danny Korchmar defenders, like the ardent, no way man, that guy was a visionary. <laughs> well, I tell you, he's, I mean, his work speaks for itself. I mean, all the work he's yeah. done in his career. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, I wish I came prepared with it. I don't have it in front of me. Maybe we'll talk about it more when we dig into River of Dreams. I mean, there's no denying what a great guitar player and everything he is. Yeah, I mean, we can poke fun because it's punching up, you know? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, work with um, Bob Dylan, David Crosby and Graham Nash, Jackson Brown. I know we did Bon Jovi, produced Van Halen, Hanson in 2006. Interesting enough. Hanson turned into Don a Henry. great band. Did they really? Their stuff from 2001 on is really good. Huh. Okay, wow. Look at this. Okay, so I'm going to give you the last one. So, uh, Produced recorded by Don Henley, Neil Young, John Bon Jovi, Stevie Nicks, Billy Joel, Hanson, Tracy Chapman, and others. Guitar on Carol King's 1975 album Thoroughbred, and wrote music for the Cheech and Chong film Up in Smoke. <laughs> That's it. That's all you need. 
Did it say what he did with, was it John or the whole band? Blaze of Glory, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Co-produced and played on John Bon Jovi's number one album, Blaze of Glory. So yeah, you know, he's got a good pedigree. Yeah, he does. But we would certainly like to hear your thoughts on him and th- this whole recording process and the documentary in general. Um, mm-hmm. You can reach out to us by email, glasshousespodcast at gmail.com. Um, we try to answer every one. We certainly read them all and who knows, we might read a couple of them on the air. Uh, so please reach out to us. You can do that there or on social media. You know, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all over there. So you can reach out to us anytime. We would definitely love to be in touch with you all. Yeah, hit us up. We'd love to hear from you. Right on. So we will see you guys in a couple of weeks. Thanks again for tuning in and we will uh, see you soon. 